Take a close look at this painting right here. This painting is entitled The Taking of Christ. It was commissioned by a wealthy family in Rome at the very beginning of the 17th century. For just 200 years, it was in that family's possession before it disappeared. And it wasn't found again until 1990. Two graduate students from the University of Rome who had heard about it began to do some research and they dug into the old account books of the family that had originally commissioned it. And that led them on a path that took them from Rome all the way up to Dublin, Ireland, beneath centuries of dust and discolored varnish, they found this beauty hanging in the dining hall of a home for Jesuit priests. The taking of Christ depicts one of the most notorious betrayals in all of the history of literature. The moment that Judas Iscariot turns over his master Jesus to the Roman authorities with a kiss. This particular version of that moment stands out for many, and certainly for me, because of the magnificent emotion and power captured in this scene. The artist, Michelangelo Merisi, better known as Caravaggio, the town where he grew up, he was, by all accounts, an outstanding artist, not only because of his technique, but because of his rebellious character. The Renaissance art period, as some of you may know, began in around the year 1400, and it stretched on through the centuries. And technically, Caravaggio might be at the very end of that period and on into the Baroque, but we're going to call him a Renaissance artist because, hey, we're Renaissance church. <laughs> <laughs> and Renaissance means, as you know, rebirth. And it's a great name for a church. And it's a great word for this kind of art because... This rebel, Caravaggio, began a rebirth in presenting especially moments from the scriptures in a way that they lived and in a way that they showed the truth differently than before. If you were to study the religious scenes painted by this man's predecessors, what you would see is they usually depicted the events in the most sterile and clean manner imaginable. All of the blemishes on the, art, uh, on the models were taken away. Everything looks pristine and perfect. In fact, many would say the Renaissance art, especially religiously, was manneristic in the sense that every person on the canvas was cast as an idealized figure with the most perfect manners, with the beautiful colors and no darkness. Often, the, the people who commissioned the paintings would be cast in the light of the religious hero there before our eyes, but not so with Caravaggio. He, he pioneered a new way of picturing religious scenes with what many have called intense realism or naturalism that was radical. You can see it when you look. When you, when you dwell on this particular scene, it's almost as if you are invited right into the action as it's unfolding by the artist. He used an intense contrast of light and dark to carry emotion. He had the figures moving and the moments of action unfolding right before your eyes. As a viewer, you are drawn in as if you were there. In a way that's hard to see in this painting, but if you were there in Rome when he first began to paint, you would also see that he flouted religious conventions because he never cast the people who paid for his art 
in the roles of the hero. In fact, he was known to use people of ill repute as his models. At one such moment, which was infamous, he was paid to paint Mary and the baby Jesus. And the model he used for Mary was a well-known town prostitute. One of the cardinals who worked at the Vatican noticed this. In two days, the painting was removed. And here's what was written about this artist. Caravaggio, his paintings are but vulgarity, sacrilege, impiousness, and disgust. One would say his work is made by a painter who can paint well, but of a dark spirit and who has been for a long time far away from God and from any good thought. Now, I say that's exactly wrong. Because when you look at this painting, what you see is the vision of a man who has a unique way of seeing what's happening. Of a man who I would suggest is actually closer to God than the religious art that sterilizes what's happening and makes it all look like a fantasy. Look at the hands on this canvas. Four figures intentionally in a pattern that draws your eyes around the canvas Four of them, their hands tell the story of what's happening. And they reveal that this is a man who hasn't just read about the story of Jesus being turned over by Judas, but who has seen something magnificent, something that not only he wanted to show, but listen now, you need to see. Look at the man on the upper right of the canvas. You'll notice that on the one hand, he glances down toward the action because he wants to see what's happening with Jesus. And not only does he want to see what's happening, but he wants to see what it means. You can see the look of intrigue in his eyes. He wants to know what it means that Jesus is betrayed like this. And I want you to listen to me now. You also want to know what it means. The whole world wants to know what it means. Every person who's ever heard of this story, that a close confidant, would betray his master with a kiss, wants to know, what does that mean? And so does this figure on the canvas. And the second thing I want you to see is his hand there, his right hand, which glows because it holds a lamp. Now, it might be hard for you to see, but that's what is beneath his hand. That rectangle there is a lamp. And though the canvas reveals other light sources, the artist wants us to know that this figure in the upper right, like us, wants to know what is happening, but he also shows us what is happening as he holds the lamp. I want you to look at another image. This image that comes on here, this is from the 1,000 lira note that began circulating in Italy in the year 2000. If you can't tell, that is the same guy there on the canvas. And that man on the 100,000 lira note, well, in 2000, the country decided to regard him as a bit of a hero because that's the artist who painted this painting. That's Caravaggio. That's from a portrait that was done by one of his contemporaries. Now, it's not uncommon in his day for artists to use themselves as models on their canvas to save money, but Caravaggio didn't need to save money. He put himself here for a reason. Because he wanted to see what it meant and he wanted to show what this meant. That is, Caravaggio painted himself onto that scene because he believed that what was happening there with Jesus mattered. 
and that it wasn't immediately apparent what was going on, but that he, like the man holding the light, would use his brush to show us what it means. And I want to tell you why I say the critics had Caravaggio wrong. He wasn't a man who was far from God. What he knew is that this moment, this scene, shows that we ourselves are beloved by Jesus, and that's what we need to see. And what I want you to see this morning, whether you're a religious person who's long believed it, or someone brought you here and it's never really crossed your mind to think very deeply about what Jesus has to do with you, and the idea that maybe he loves you seems as remote as Renaissance art. The truth about this painting is that it shows the truth that I want you to see, which is that Jesus loves you. And here, I want to make it as plain as I can what we're going to do today and in the weeks leading up to Easter. Each week, we're going to let an artist guide us in the process of seeing Jesus. And the reason we're going to do that is simple. Seeing Jesus is partly a science and partly an art. And I say science because, well, the information that we have about Jesus comes in the Bible from ancient texts, and interpreting and applying them is a science. Uh, it's called hermeneutics. Uh, that is the, the intentional application of a set of rules that are used to interpret ancient literature and apply it to the present. And I'm going to do that with you, but in order to do that in a way that matters, well, that's also an art. Because seeing Jesus requires the use of your imagination. You can hear these words, but the ability to imagine yourself there, that takes some artistic gift. And Caravaggio and the others we'll look at, they were excellent at it. At capturing that scene that we'll read about and then showing it to us in a way that allows us to live in it. And what I want is for you and for me to live in these old stories so that we see Jesus and then see ourselves in a new way. And now I want you to understand why I want you to see Jesus. It's not, it's not just because I happen to be a person who's employed by a church. And I, I say that because that would be easy to imagine. Well, that's his job. Of course, he thinks we need to see Jesus. After all, look at his bow tie. It screams, I want you to see Jesus. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I really appreciate that. I want you to see Jesus here. This is what it says in the scripture about seeing Jesus. I want you to see Jesus so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that through believing, you may have life in his name. I want you to see Jesus because I see a lot of people who even though they are alive, they are dead. I see it everywhere I look. Men and women who face each day as if it's just a gray repeat of the one before and are rushing on to the next one so they can finally get away from the misery of their present. And that's not what life was supposed to be. And I know and I trust, as John said right here, and by the way, the man who wrote these words is actually pictured in this painting. That the man who wrote those words saw something. He saw that when a person sees Jesus, when a person is given the art to actually see themselves there with Jesus, what they see changes everything so that they believe and trust something new, that he is Messiah, that is God's anointed. And that, that may be strange to you, but I want to unfold it today. But you see that in such a way that your life is altogether transformed, so that you're abandoning everything that was before and moving on into a future where you have real life. 
life in his name. And that is my goal. And the way I trust that we achieve that is when we see him. And this artist Caravaggio captures a scene in which we see something about Jesus that is magnificent. And, and this week and the week after and after that still, each week we'll look at another masterpiece so that we can see Jesus. And we'll use the skill of the artist to help us be there. And I want to do that now with you so that we can be in that garden. And I want to give you the backstory. And if you know this well already, if you know the story of Jesus, use your imagination and let yourself live in it again for a few moments. If this is new to you, imagine that you were there in the first century when the crowds began to gather because there was an exceptional teacher. There is an ordinary man who's speaking about ultimate things and you come near and when you hear his words, you're struck by the power of his vision. He seems to see life and the world around in a way that no one else has and he seems to be closer to God than anyone else who's ever spoken. And as you listen, your heart begins to be drawn to him and you want to follow him. And listen now, maybe you already are a person in this place this morning who would say, I am a disciple. Maybe you're not. Disciple is a very simple word that means a follower. Try this with me. Imagine that you began to follow Jesus because of his teaching. And that means you put aside your work and your tasks and you literally followed him from one village to the next. You watched him love people that no one else loved and it was moving. You saw him exert power over mental illness, over wickedness, over unkindness and cruelty, even over the powers of evil. And, and you were moved to say, this man has unique power. And now you begin not only to follow him literally, but figuratively. That is, you say, whatever his vision for life is, I want that too. I want to follow his ideas. I want to follow his values. I want to follow his way of thinking about what matters most in the world. By the way, I genuinely believe that anyone who really sees Jesus wants to follow him like that. He's so utterly compelling. He's just what our world needs. He's just what you need. Well, imagine there you are following, and you, you begin to become one of those who says, my life is going in a new direction now because of him. There's a moment for these disciples where things shift and the subject of Messiah comes up. Now, if you don't know, the word Messiah is a Hebrew word which means anointed one. The people who had lived in that region, the Jewish people, the people of the faith of Israel, had been long hoping that one day God would send someone to deliver them from all of the oppression that made their lives miserable. And now these disciples began to think that Jesus must be God's Messiah. He's the one who will deliver us. Here, as an aside, wherever you are in faith, do you know what it's like to know that you need to be delivered? But I'm not talking about that you need to improve a little bit, right? Or that you wish things would change just a little bit in your life. I mean that moment in life where, where you know deep down inside, what I need is to be saved. And I'm not even talking first in religious terms. You just need someone to save you. Have you been there? Have you ever been there? this group of disciples looked at Jesus and said, he's God's deliverer. And they were right. They were absolutely right, but they were wrong. And they were wrong because they didn't understand yet what he was going to deliver them from and how he had to do it. You see, I'll put this as simply as I can. They believed they needed to be delivered from external oppression out there 
But the real deliverance they needed was from the internal oppression inside of their hearts, which would follow them no matter where they went. Now, some of you know just what I mean. They thought they needed to be delivered from Rome, and to put it simply, the Bible said what they needed to be delivered from was their own sin. And whatever you think about that word, listen, sin is a word that describes the state of being separated from God. And the claim on the pages of the New Testament for those disciples was that they thought they needed to be saved from the things out there, but it was their own inclination to turn away from God that would forever ruin their life and would, they would never be free until they were free of that. And Jesus came to save them from that. And they hadn't seen that yet. And what they thought was that Jesus was going to deliver them by conquering Rome. And the truth about how he would deliver them from their sin was so hard for them to believe that they couldn't even accept it when he told it right in their own ears. Imagine this. Back to the teaching. He finishes the lesson one day. And all of us are there with him and we think, it couldn't get any better. This is God's deliverer and he's going to save us. And then he takes us aside and he says, listen, we're going to go to the city of Jerusalem. And now we're thinking, yes, because that's where you're going to finally become king. And he says, and there I'm going to be turned over. I'm going to be arrested. The scribes and the Pharisees are going to put me on trial. I will be turned over to the Gentiles and they will kill me. Upon hearing this, one of the followers of Jesus, Peter, he says, God forbid it, that will never, ever happen. Jesus looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. That's the, the one time, I think, when Jesus actually called someone Satan. That wouldn't feel very good, would it? That's about as low as it gets. A second time, Jesus takes them aside. We're going to Jerusalem and I will be killed there. I will die. They can't even believe it. A third time he tells them, still they don't get it. And then comes the weekend of the celebration of the Passover. Imagine now that you are with Jesus and you're in the city of Jerusalem and there are thousands and thousands of religious pilgrims from all over the region who've come together to celebrate the time at which God delivered his people from oppression when he delivered them from Egypt by the blood of a lamb. And now Jesus sits at a table with his followers and he breaks bread and pours out the cup and he tells them on this evening, tonight is the very night at which it'll happen. In fact, one of you is the one who will betray me. I will be turned over and I will be arrested and the Gentiles will mistreat me and mock me and beat me and I will be crucified, and I will die. Now, now their ears are opened, and they can't believe it. They've heard what he said. Dinner ends. He takes them out of the city. They climb up a hill in the dark to a place called Gethsemane, a garden. That's where this painting is set. There, he asks the disciples to pray for him. While he goes deeper into the garden and brings three with him, Peter, James, and John, he tells them, stay awake and you pray for me while I go in deeper and pray. And there he opens his heart to his heavenly father. Jesus knows what's coming and he fears it. But he knows that he must do it because, listen now, this is how he's going to save them. He returns, they're asleep, he wakes them up, he goes back and prays again. He comes a second time, asleep again, he wakes them up. It happens three times. After the third time, he wakes those disciples up, 
That is the moment when the action which was painted by Caravaggio takes place. Listen to how it's described in Matthew chapter 25, verse 47. While he was still speaking, that's Jesus, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. In the painting, the men that are clad in black armor, Roman soldiers, those are Caravaggio's version of the crowds that have come to arrest Jesus who have been brought by Judas. Judas was one of the 12, one of the hand-selected apostles, one of the men whom Jesus brought onto his team, knowing that man better than he knew himself. That man, Judas, is the one who leads the crowds. Verse 48, now... The betrayer had given them a sign, saying, the one I will kiss is the man, arrest him. At once he came up to Jesus and said, greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. The kiss is a, is a sign of affection. It's a greeting for a friend. It's a sign of respect and deference from a student to his teacher. And here Judas twists it into the sign of betrayal and arrest. The word there that's used to describe Judas, do you see it? The betrayer? That's a very unique word in the Greek language. It comes from a verb, paradidomai, a verb which literally means handing over. And so here, Judas is described as the handing over one. Now listen, it's no mistake that the artist Caravaggio depicts the meaning in this scene through the hands. We're going to come back to that. After he kisses Jesus, verse 50, Jesus said to him, friend, do what you are here to do. Now one more word before we continue. Jesus chose to call this betrayer friend on purpose. Matthew never records a word without being very intentional. And Jesus could have called Judas many other things, but here he chooses to call him friend. And I want you to understand that the figure of Judas is the most treacherous figure that could be pictured in the Bible, and he is also the one that Jesus calls friend. And Jesus meant it. Then they came... And they laid hands on Jesus and they arrested him. Look at the painting again. And look at the hands again. The hands which, which cut across one side and then there up on the upper right. That hand there on the upper right, the hand of the artist. Remember, this is the one who the religious authorities said was nothing but a rebel and a scoundrel who was far from God. Nonsense, I say. Because this hand, which holds the light to show us what's going on, and which was the hand which painted this scene for us, saw, <coughs> excuse me, in this hand right here, he saw that the hand of Judas, which gripped the shoulder of Jesus, was a complex hand. It was a hand that at once pretended to be a friend, and at the same moment attempted to arrest and restrain Jesus. 
It was the hand that said, outwardly, I love you, but inwardly said, you are worth to me nothing but 30 pieces of silver. And if you ask the Bible why Judas betrayed Jesus, it was for a, a, a sack of silver coins. That's why he did it. He was greedy. This is the hand which pretends outwardly to love, but inwardly turns over. And I think Carvaggio wanted to capture that complexity because he knows what is true about every single man and woman who will ever, ever live. The ones who want nothing to do with Jesus as well as the cardinal in Rome. And that is every one of us has hands that have mixed motives. And in this moment, this hand which looks like it's embracing for a kiss but is in reality trying to turn this one Jesus over to the authorities to be arrested is seen by all of the other disciples present as a sign that Jesus has lost and wickedness has won. That hand says to all of the apostles who were present that night, give up. Jesus was one who inspired hope in you, but you put your hope in the wrong thing because he's been overwhelmed. And that's why we have this other hand up here at the top. That hand and that face, that facial expression there, they say, we made a mistake when we chose to hope in Jesus. They say, run for your lives because wickedness is stronger than good. And they say what many of us will feel, and if we can be honest with ourselves here in this room this morning, those of us who have said, Jesus is my Lord, I trust him, he's my savior, he's come to rescue me, even still, many of us will find moments in our life where we feel exactly like that man, where we want to throw our hands up and run because it seems as though Jesus has been overpowered. Am I speaking the truth? That there traditionally is understood as John, the one who wrote those words that we should see Jesus so that seeing, we would believe that he was the Messiah. Listen, he wrote those words after this moment because in this moment, all he sees is that because of the hands of Judas, Everything is over. But now listen, there's one other set of hands on this canvas on which the artist hangs the weight of his entire understanding of this scene. It's the dramatic and literal foundation of the canvas. There at the bottom, you'll see these two hands here, and these are the hands of Jesus. If you look away from them from a, for a moment up to the face of Jesus, you will see that they are unnaturally far from his face as he leans back and pushes his hands as far away from himself as he can. In fact, too far. And that's not because this artist can't manage proportions. It's because he wants to say something very deep with this gesture. And what he wants to say, listen, is that Jesus has not been overpowered. Jesus still has all the power. What he wants to say is that Jesus has not been overwhelmed by the power of someone stronger than he is. He wants to say with this gesture, Jesus is exerting self-control. which He is exerting great power over himself as he restrains his hands, which he could easily use to command the power of legions of angels and stop everything from going forward, but he chooses not to. Because in this moment, Jesus is controlling the action, not Judas. And what Jesus is doing with his power, this is critical, is handing himself over, even though it looks like Judas is the one who's doing the handing over. Do you see it? 
I want you to look at these words which were written by the Apostle Paul, who thought about what this all means and put it this way. Jesus loved me and gave himself up for me. Those words from the book of Galatians are a summation of the gospel start to finish, and they grow immediately out of Paul's reflection on this particular moment, which Caravaggio saw well. The verb there, which is translated, gave himself up, is paradidomai, the exact same verb which is used to describe the identity of the betrayer, the handing over one. Judas gave Jesus up, Jesus gave himself up. And in the balance of power between Judas and Jesus, Jesus is, ha is the one who has more power. And there's a reason why Jesus did that. And here it is. And this is what you must see. Jesus did that because Jesus loved you and gave himself up for you. And I don't know what you believe about this. I don't. But I know what is the emphatic and universal proclamation of the entire New Testament about who Jesus was. And it is that Jesus came to save the world from sin. And that's not an abstract theological category out there, but it is a descriptive term which captures what is true of every one of us in here. And it is that day in and day out, the true roots of our misery is not that we need to learn a few more good ideas, not that we need to pay attention to Jesus' teaching more than we used to, not that we follow his example more than we did before. All of those things are emphatically important and good, but the heart of the New Testament's uh, declaration is that you and I are hopelessly lost until we're rescued from our sin, from that root that will always push us down a path even against our best intentions, away from God and to our own destruction and to the destruction of the world around us. Jesus folded his hands in this moment, knowing full well what it would mean, that after this arrest, he would stand on trial before the religious authorities of his own people, and they would lie about him, and then they would pass him along to the Gentiles. And that next morning, as the sun was rising, he would be finishing up a trial before Pilate, and then the Gentile soldiers would mock him and spit in his face. They would, they would uh, cruelly beat him in front of the crowds and then make him carry his own cross up a hill. And then by midday, Jesus knew that he would be crucified. And there on the cross, as he died in front of the crowds, in front of his friends, in front of his own mother, for goodness sake, that he would expire there as the sky was darkened and that he did it all for one single reason. And it's in these words, because he loved you and gave himself up for you. Listen how Paul describes what happened on the cross. I'm going to say it this morning, and I very, very much hope I can show it to you in the next few weeks, especially on the week before Easter, that when Jesus was nailed to the cross, you and I were forgiven of our transgressions and our iniquity. Those are old-fashioned words. Transgress, transgression means we, we made a misstep. Iniquity means something that's just simply unjust. And you've walked in here yourself with those actions behind you and maybe even with you today. 
But when Jesus died on the cross, it says this in Colossians, God took the legal record with its demands that were against us, and this he nailed it to the cross with Jesus, and he did that so that we could be truly forgiven, so that the record that was against you and against me could be taken away, and we could be liberated from all our sin. In another place, Paul writes it like this, Rarely will a person dare to die for a righteous person, though maybe for a good man someone might dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That means that Jesus' hands here were folded even for the betrayer Judas. And that means that they were folded for us too. And later, John, the one running away up there on the side, would write in his letter, 1 John 4, he would write, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he gave his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sin. God himself, paradidomai Jesus, for our sin. I want you to see this. I think Caravaggio was a genius because I think he saw it. And that man had no illusions about his own need. He was a mess. But when he painted those hands of Jesus, I believe his heart saw that those hands were folded for me and for everyone who has ever lived and everyone who will ever live, and they were folded for you. What if you would see that? John, whose words we began with, well, he said that if any one of us would see those folded hands for us, we may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing, you may have life in his name. You need, you need real life. And the thing which stands between every one of us and real life, it's the chasm that divides us from God to our own detriment forever until we are ready to accept that God in Christ has bridged that chasm with his gracious hands so that we are forgiven and utterly free and we can walk away from the guilt and grief and misery of life behind us into newness of life. And here is what I want to say to every one of you who is ready this morning to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. You are free. And so my challenge to you is very simple. Accept that freedom and be glad deep in your heart. Do you have regret over your past? Of course you do. If you have a conscience, you do. You are free from it, and you should just be thankful. Yeah, I'm serious. That's exactly what the heart should say, that sees that I am okay because Jesus gave himself for me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm serious. It's not too much to say that. Yes. And you should be grateful. And that's my invitation and challenge to you this morning, to believe that Jesus folded his hand in the garden for you so that you can be grateful and altogether free. You don't need to just improve yourself a little bit. You don't need to try harder than you tried yesterday. It doesn't work. You don't need to get some new program that's going to give you the steps to self-improvement and finally get further. You just need to accept his acceptance of you and his love and let your heart say the deepest and most profound, yeah, and rest in it. That's for you. Believe. And then, for those of us who are here who have not yet believed, here's, here's what I'm going to ask you to do, and I'm challenging you to do this. Stay and keep your eyes open. Ask God to help you see. If you've never seen before, 
Even now as I speak, say a prayer, God, if it is true that if I would see Jesus, I would be transformed, right now say that prayer, God, help me see Jesus. I want it. Help me be changed. Help me see. Help me believe. And believe does not, first of all, mean an act of your brain, but it is the decision to trust, which is both your brain and your heart. And here now, I'll say this to you. Maybe today is the day you take one more step toward belief. Do it. Don't wait. Take a step in your heart toward belief that in God, Jesus has come to deliver me. Ask him to make that known to your heart and and give you the freedom from everything that's behind for everything that's before through the grace of this Lord who handed himself over for even you. I want to ask you to join me in prayer now. And when I'm done praying, the musicians are going to lead us in a song that will help us ask God to make this grace known to us in our own hearts. Let's pray. God, for the gift of the artist's vision to see Jesus, we give you thanks. For the work that the artist Caravaggio put into seeing you, And for the skill with which he executed that canvas, we praise you. Thank you for the gifts that you give to many people to help us see you better. God, most of all, we thank you that in that moment, instead of fighting back, Jesus chose to fold his hands and to, in effect, hand himself over for us. And not for us only, but for the whole world, even for Judas. God, would you please help belief grow in our hearts this morning so that we can trust you and have life in your name so that we can be free of everything that's behind, altogether new, and deep down in our hearts we can rest in your love for us, and not only for us, but for the whole world. God, if there's a person who doesn't see it yet, would you open their eyes through the power of your spirit? Would you open their heart? Would you use this song we sing now together to draw them close, so that they would see you and have life in your name? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.